Author Nicholson Baker discusses his book, Baseless, his research into biological warfare during the Korean War, and the history of the Freedom of Information Act. Hello and welcome to the New Republic Salon. This is a monthly series where we interview the authors of new books. We've moved online while everything's closed, but the basic format is the same as in person. So we're going to hear a reading, discuss the book, and then at the end, we'll have some questions from the audience. Um, just drop your questions in the Q&A box at any time when we're talking and I'll pull them out at the end. Um, tonight, I am very excited to be here with Nicholson Baker, who's going to be talking about his book, Baseless, my search for secrets in the ruins of the freedom of information act nick uh thank you so much for joining us great to have you here well i'm very 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 glad to be here with you. i'm also glad to see that where you are it isn't black as night because where i am there is like rolling thunder and uh cracks of forked lightning and where you are so airy and, and lovely oh. well I, I could see the tops of the trees waving back and forth and a kind of grim note of worry in the sky but we'll we'll get through it Okay, well, um, so do you want to start us off with a reading from the book? Right away. All right. Well, um, I mean, feel free to, to <laughs> broadly introduce the book too, if you want. Sure. I'll well, the book, is, the book is sort of a, my effort to, to, uh, to join or hybridize or genetically recombine two timelines, my own daily life of a guy who is trying to write a history of something that is from a long time ago and was world historical and important. And the question that I wanted to ask in order to illustrate whether government secrecy was too pervasive or not was, did the Americans use germ weapons in the Korean War? It's sort of a case study, you know? Did, how much can you find out about something that's uncomfortable um, when it's, you know, almost seven, when it's over, over 70 years ago? Anyway, it was a long time ago. So um, there was an important moment um, that, and I want to read from that maybe, is um, the Korean War was a, a horror show. It was, there was tremendous amount of, of um, indiscriminate, well, there was a lot of death. It was a terrible war. It was an attempt really to burn an entire country on the part of the United States. Um, but there was a particularly important moment just after the American forces were defeated in the North by the Chinese counterattack late in 1950. Um, something happened. And some, some people from the British Middlesex Regiment who were part of this effort to help the police action that Harry Truman had started in Korea, intervening in a civil war, um, this man noticed a strange thing, a town that was uh, there as they were retreating down south, avoiding the counterattacking Chinese. Uh, there were these men sort of strangely dressed. I think they were wearing white and they holding these boxes filled with feathers and they were tossing feathers around. He couldn't understand it and a few, uh, weeks later, 
um, he got a bunch of new vaccinations. So that's one data point, okay? The second data point is um, that a new disease appeared in Korea along the, what is now the DMZ in isolated foci in early 1951. So those are the two data points. Feathers being flung around mysteriously during a retreat and a new disease appears in Korea. So that's the fever never before seen in Korea began killing American servicemen. It appeared in isolated spots or foci strung like beads across the narrow midsection of the country. It wasn't hemorrhagic smallpox, which is a bacterial infection. It was hemorrhagic fever. This is, by the way, very, uh, this is dark. And I want you to know that there's some nice lighter moments in this book, but there's, it's a very germy book. <laughs> um, it was hemorrhagic fever or Songo fever, as the Japanese called it, a virus with similar symptoms. In hemorrhagic smallpox, your face turns black before you die. In hemorrhagic fever, your face turns purple. The Far East Command set up a hemorrhagic fever center, the 8,228th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital in the middle of the epidemic, and they enlisted the help of Kitano Masaji and his Japanese germ warfare colleagues to help them understand what was going on. So let's think about this. The very disease that Kitano had isolated, identified, purified, and made more virulent during the Second World War, the disease that he and his helpers had repeatedly injected into monkeys, horses, and human beings, was now at large in a band across Korea, several years after the United States government had recruited Kitano's cooperation. The majority of the cases occurred north of the 38th parallel in the Yonchon Chorwan Kumwa section of the front, and the remainder in a belt along the 38th parallel, wrote Carlton Gajudek, an epidemiologist. All evidence, points, all evidence points toward infection from a common localized source over a brief period. So that's what an epidemiologist said. The new disease, although known to American army doctors for months, didn't find its way into newspapers until November 1951. Uh, I'm gonna skip because I don't wanna to read too much about the disease, except I wanna to get to what happened. What happens in this disease? Um, the Associated Press made a statement, Sango or epidemic hemorrhagic fever was not, absolutely not germ warfare. There was no suggestion, they said, in any of the dispatches that the disease among allied troops might involve bacteriological warfare in any way. Apparently, it was contracted from sick prisoners or refugees. A British doctor, Dr. Andrew, published an account of 40 hemorrhagic fever patients he cared for in the British Commonwealth General Hospital in Kure, Japan, because the Americans and the British had hospitals in Japan because the Americans were in charge of Japan at that point. Most patients recalled the field mouse or vole, he wrote, that was somehow associated with the disease although the etiology was obscure. Some voles were tame enough to take food from the men's mouths, Dr. Andrews reported. One patient found one in his bedding a month before his disease began. He developed severe hemorrhages during the course of his illness and died. 
Andrews tells the man's story. Soon after he left Korea for Japan, he became feverish with increasing mental confusion. He developed a gross hemorrhage in the infundibular stalk of his brain. He began vomiting blood, his cause of death, epidemic hemorrhagic fever with widespread hemorrhages and terminal inhalation of vomit. In December 2008, I interviewed a former Marine, Tom Kennedy, at his apartment in Manhattan. Kennedy, who won a Purple Heart after removing wounded men under mortar fire in 1953, came down with a bad fever soon after the fighting stopped in Korea and couldn't move from his sleeping bag. He thought he had malaria, which was fairly common among soldiers. A helicopter came out to our little outpost, he told me, and they put me on a stretcher and flew me over hills that I'd been walking on for so many months. The helicopter landed in a special mass unit where there were three Quonset huts. The first Quonset hut, you're probably gonna die, he said. The second Quonset hut, you had a 50-50 chance. The third Quonset hut, you're probably, gonna walk, you're probably gonna walk away. The doctors put Kennedy in the first Quonset hut, and he spent some days there, burning up. They, locked, they looked at me like I was, they were looking at a corpse, he said. There was no cure, but they gave us a lot of water. It was an awful place because people were screaming and dying. Then they moved him to the second Quonset hut, and finally to the third. He was told that he had a new disease, hemorrhagic fever that was carried by a, by a tick on a rat. He was discharged with no mention on his record of his month-long convalescence. Because the United States forces couldn't prevail on the battlefield, Kennedy believed, they sought help from Japanese germ scientists and tried to kill a lot of enemy soldiers with disease. There was no history of hemorrhagic fever in Korea until its use as a germ weapon, he wrote in an autobiographical note in 2015. I was one of those American service members exposed to the secret crime against humanity. There's another soldier, a guy who played the trombone named Jack Elbon. He also fell ill. He was helicoptered out and told that he had this new disease. He spent weeks in the hospital. Every night his fever spiked, his weight dropped from 160 to 125. He lived on half a piece of toast, a cup of tea and a cup of pear juice. It seemed as though someone from that ward would die every night, he said. I spent long days living my life from early childhood, from life during the Depression to being a teenager during World War II. I even replayed football and basketball games in my mind. Finally, his fever broke. You are one of the lucky ones, said a nurse. You are going to live. That's Korean hemorrhagic fever that had never before been in Korea and that was worked on by the Japanese germ warfare scientists and then just mysteriously appeared at the, on the 38th parallel. So as you said, it's incredibly painful and frightening to read about. Um, we heard about the feathers and the official denial, but what evidence is there? I'm trying to set this in a broader context. What mm -hmm. evidence is there that this was part of a germ warfare program? Well, 
I think you have to start with, if, if a country goes to the UN, as the North Koreans did, and says, a very bad thing happened when the Americans retreated in November, they left behind diseases. And then you have another piece of information, which was that people were getting sick from a brand new disease. You have to think that something odd is going on. You don't have the full information, right? But then you add to that, the evidence that you add to that is the fact that the United States had secretly secured the cooperation of all the important germ warfare scientists that had been in the Japanese army experimenting on Chinese prisoners. So you have, you know that, that, that the most experienced people on the planet at, get, at making other people sick with exotic diseases and familiar diseases w were now working for the American government. And then you have a third piece of information, which is that the specific disease that the number two man in this organization in the Japanese army, Masaji, Kitano Masaji, was um, Sango fever. So he had discovered this disease. He was very excited about it. He wrote a scientific paper um, about it, which is available. He talked about the fact that he had in, in, injected apes with it and the apes he was referring to were in fact humans. Um, and so he was an expert in this disease. And then miraculously, and this is, I think the final piece of evidence, this disease began making people sick, Americans and also mm -hmm. South Koreans and North Koreans in, in the Korean War. So it's almost, you know, it's a lot of evidence actually, mm -hmm. even though it's complete, it was completely denied by the Americans. In fact, it wasn't just denied, it was ridiculed. It was treated with derision by the press and the, and the government. Um, and so that's one, one episode of many in the book. I want to get a sense of broadly what kind of program that fits into and what kind of scope of uh, biological warfare program are you talking about in the book? Well, it's a program that I didn't know anything about and I didn't even know that I would be interested in it. Um, I'm, I'm a guy who was in the middle when I got interested in all this in a writing about the fact that libraries were throwing away beautiful old newspapers and microfilming them. And it just happened that on the book rack, the new book rack in the University of New Hampshire library was a book by two guys from Canada, Stephen Endicott and Edward Hagerman. And there was a book about this biological warfare program. And what they had done is because there'd been suddenly a whole lot thousands and thousands of pages of documents opened. They went through them and they carefully, painstakingly constructed the institutional history of the American, early American germ warfare program. And it was, it was very extensive because it was built on fear. The fear was that the communist armies in Russia and China were enormous and they were going to overwhelm the Western European armies and the American armies. And if you want to win a war, which they were, and they assumed that a war was going to come in a matter of two or three years, you had to have a new special set of weapons, weapons built on American industrial and scientific might, smart weapons. And, the, and at the top of the list 
under just at the very same level as atomic weapons, they moved biological weapons up to priority 1A. So they said, we are going to now get a whole suite of biological weapons that will help us win this war. We will drop our atomic bombs, and then afterwards, we will make everyone who survived the atomic bombs very sick. If they're down in the subway stations hiding, we will fit, find ways to make them sick down there. So that was the plan. And they had all kinds of special programs in universities and in their main place of work in, in uh, um, Camp Dietrich, it was called then, now Fort Dietrich, where they were trying to make very bad diseases worse. They were trying to make things more infectious and, and resistant to antibiotics and in other ways, just really nasty. So that was the, basically, that was the American germ warfare program. It was gigantic mm -hmm. under Harry Truman. And it was, a, it was a huge and very secretive operation that has never been fully declassified. But these two men told the story of it and that got me interested in it. And so when we're talking about germ warfare or biological weapons, um, the example you just gave is a disease, a, a just very, um, painful and lethal disease that affects humans. Uh, but the scope of it is that this US government program includes attacks on humans, livestock and crops. Is that right? Right. And this is the thing that really started to interest me is that what they thought was that the way to win against Russia was to destroy the Russian wheat crop. And they hired um, all these experts in a certain fungal disease of wheat. There were, most of them were from the University of Minnesota, and one was a famous wheat crop and they, expert. And they mixed these little tiny spores that they gathered off of sick wheat plants in fields and uh, mixed them with feathers. And so they came up with a feather bomb that would be it would look like a leaflet bomb, but it would be filled with feathers. You know, it's funny, you know, when I describe this stuff, it just seems so surreal and, and strange. Uh, and even though I've sat in the National Archives and looked through all the pictures of the feather bomb and all that, there's a huge, sport, a huge report about the, how the feather bomb works and with all the, you know, color pictures of feathers with spores, feathers without spores, just to show you that nobody's really gonna see those little spores. It's just gonna mm -hmm. look like a feather, you know? It's gonna be totally covert, totally secret. I still find it hard to believe. But anyway, the feathers fall, these little tiny things that are very small, spores they're called, infect the wheat crop. The wheat crop develops this stem rust and dies. And that was the idea. And they were gonna deliver this stuff either by these feather-filled former leaflet bombs or they were going to use balloon bombs that were styrofoam, big styrofoam gondolas that were at high level and they would suddenly pop open and drop spores. Um, and they were going to just, basically the guy, one guy who was interviewed said, the point is if the army is starving, it can't fight. So that was the way they were going to win the war, was a war of attrition, a war of starvation. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that seems one reason that they were attracted to these unconventional weapons, as you call them. 
Um, I'd love to know more about that because this is a period when conventional weapons are becoming incredibly sophisticated and much deadlier too. Um, and I think that it's fair to say that the conversation about weapons um, in the last half century has really focused more on the enormous threat from nuclear weapons, which everyone knows about. Mm -hmm. um, what drew um, the US government to explore biological warfare? I mean, what was the attraction of that uniquely to them at the time? Well, uh, the main attraction was that they had just inherited the stewardship of Germany and Japan. And Germany and Japan were both really completely destroyed by firebombing and conventional high explosive bombing. So they were looking at what happens when you wage war against an enemy and you blow everything up from the air. So the idea was to come up with a way that would sicken people, make demoralize them, allow the conquering country to impose its will, but not destroy a lot of buildings and bridges and leave an, a huge kind of destroyed, burned country to take care of. So, and they were thinking about it because they were taking care of Japan and Germany. So that was the idea is mm -hmm. how do you take control without killing, without, and kill some people and sicken others, but without you know, built, destroying all the nice buildings. Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of typical calculation of preserving property, but not human life. Well, I mean, it is. Usually was, you can't do in war. And there was a, there was a, a one mo moment that really startled me um, where the man gave a lecture, uh, one of the Air Force's experts in, in various biological weapons. He gave a lecture and he talked about all the different important ways that this would help the American war effort. And you have to realize that they really thought a, a total war with Russia was going to come in a matter of years. The point was that certain germs were just a lot cheaper. And he actually gave a price per pound of a whole list of diseases, including this wheat rust disease was a certain price per pound. It was pretty cheap because that when you drop it, it also infects the wheat, so it propagates. Whereas something, um, some other diseases were very expensive uh, because they had to be purified and uh, dealt with as highly infectious. So it was actually a calculus of, it was a way of saving money. And that's one of the things I think was so appealing to Harry Truman about it because he was a guy who just, loved the idea of thrift and, you know, he trained as a haberdasher and he liked to save money. And he thought, well, we'll have this lean, but very intelligent military and it will do things that nobody's ever done before. And since he was the first person to authorize the nuclear bomb, this was, I mean, he had his regrets about that. And part of it was the guilt over the bomb. Maybe he thought, well, if we infect them with brucellosis, which was one of their earliest things, it's more attractive because it only kills, le it kills less than 5% of the people it infects. So it's not a universally lethal sickness. It's just a somewhat lethal sickness. So the brucellosis bomb, they worked on for a while until the Korean War really got bad. And then the Air Force generals said, we need a quote, killer weapon. 
And then they started look back, going back and looking at plague and anthrax and the other more deadly things. And listen, it's true. This is all, this all happened, but why would I, who can write, I would like, to, I would love, I love the planet. I want to write about nice things. Why would I write about that? It's partly that I'm interested in, you know, the mystery of what happened, but also in the fact that human life has these sudden moments of aberration called wars where everybody just becomes nuts and starts trying to develop the most advanced ways of killing each other. And mo yet most of us, you know, what we do is we get up in the morning, make coffee, you know, we like to drive around in cars. We don't do none. We're trying to be nice to each other. So how do these two things fit? So I kind of try, I tried to use my own life as a case study, as a kind of put myself in a Petri dish. What do you, Nick Baker, think about? If you decide you're going to think about all these horrible germ diseases that you don't know much about, how can you import that into your daily life of taking care of dachshunds and, and um, you know, I'm trying to be a good husband and talk to my wife and do the normal things that I do. So it's that mixture that really appeals to me about the project of trying to write this book. Well, a lot of this book is about the frustrations of trying to find out what happened. Um, right. So let's talk about that a bit. Um, you talked about the book that have been written about this, but also a lot of what the book is about is following up on documents, trying to get memos, trying to get primary sources from within the US government of how this was being planned, who's talking to who, and kind of what the main goals were. Right. Um, so <laughs> why don't you tell us about some of the problems with that? Well, the problems are that uh, the natural instinct of an agency is not to give up its secrets. And you can understand that for a while, five, 10 years or something. But in the case of the Air Force and um, even more so the CIA, they want to guard their secrets forever. They want to have perma secrets. They do not want to give up anything. So everything, getting anything out that they want to hold back. Now they don't want to hold everything back because they want to, you know, have some sense of the, of the good things and, you know, get a, they want to give people something. So they have this sort of tension and they release documents, but they don't tell how, what the size of the total set of documents this release subset is. So the tension is always, how much am I getting? What, is this a misleading picture? Is this a very selective picture? Or is this a true a kind of sampling of all the correspondence and cables, let's say for something? In fact, just yesterday, should I? I think I you should, it. yeah. Okay. I, well, maybe I before we go right into yeah. it, let's just explain the expectation here is set yeah. by the Freedom of Information Act. Yes. Um, so that stipulates that any US citizen should be allowed to request information on what the government has done as long as it's, you know, past a certain period. And that, that mm. request should be responded to within, is it 25 days? Well, it's theoretically 20 days, but it doesn't matter because days. it's never respected. So. so you've put in how, how many requests like this would you estimate? I, I guess it would be maybe not that many compared to the people who are real FOIA requesters, uh, Michael Revnitsky or people like Nate Jones in, who works now for the Washington Post. These are people who have made thousands of requests. 
I uh, made my first request, and it was about a guy who worked at the Library of Congress, and I sent it in, and about, I think it was about 1999. A month later, a package came from the CIA, and it was fascinating, and it said, here's this stuff, and yes, this man worked on certain CIA-funded projects at the library, and there were some whiteouts, but it was all a success. So I thought the FOIA Freedom of Information Act worked. Um, but later when I, uh, actually my son helped me, um, I said, I need to make a whole bunch of requests to the Air Force of, for documents that are held at the National Archives, but are controlled by the Air Force. So that, so he went through a bunch of, of my photocopies of these forms that are yellow on yellow cardstock that say access restricted. And they give you the name of the person the doc, who sent the document sometimes and re received the document. Maybe you get the subject line and you get a bunch of codes and some subject codes. So he and I together came up with this letter that we sent off to the National Archives saying we'd like these 21 documents. And we, it could have been 200 documents. It just had to be. And it just happened to be these ones. So that was in 2012. Um, and then a couple years went by and I, I would write these letters to the National Archives saying, how's it going? And, you know, any progress? No, no progress. We're waiting to hear from the agencies who are connected to these documents. And there was not just the Air Force, it's also probably the CIA because the CIA and the Air Force cooperated very closely. So more years went by, I wrote some books, you know, presidents came and went. It started to seem really bizarre that, you know, it was six years I'd been waiting for something. And the, the really the language of the Freedom of Information Act is pretty explicit, things should happen quickly. This is the whole triumph of this law that was fought for by Congressman Moss in beginning in 1955. It took him 10 years to get this law passed. Lyndon Johnson signed it reluctantly into law in 1965. It had some enormously productive years where things were liberated and then it started to break and disintegrate and lose its and fizzle out and stop working. So I'm at the tail end here saying, here's this beautiful law and you are not obeying it. And so then another year would go by. Mm -hmm. So so 2012, I have not gotten a single response to those 21, those documents. It's not like I'm saying, give me some documents that you may have. I'm telling them exactly which memo, what file folder it is in, that it is under, it is, it is, its subject matter is 471.6 biological weapons. This document, I know who wrote it. I know everything about it. In fact, I know the place in the National Archives that is a matter of several hundred yards away from the big reading area where it is held. I know everything about it, except that I can never go into that facility because it's secret. It's kept from me. So I, mm -hmm. I'm trying to write a history of this period but this document now for, what, eight years is not available. And, and there are hundreds and hundreds of documents like this. In fact, thousands. And they're always the ones that you really want to see because why else would they hold them back? It's a lot of work to keep things secret. 
Right. So and I, I feel like I should point out that um, you did get a lot of primary source material, not least because you took on the boxes of uh, previous researchers. Is that right? right so right. you had access to all of this and you found other ways of getting things, um, including some memos that were actually printed out in books and then happened to be classified again when you go to request right. them, which is really nuts. Um, and so what you have here, this is some form of response that arrived in the mail yesterday right so what Should i have is it? a very typical this is a typical um cia request experience and i don't know which one it is because i've sent a lot of requests to the cia when i was writing the book part of what i would do is every so often send off a request so it's so somewhere um a year later or so i've gotten this envelope and this is this is what i kind of at this point love about the cia's work is that this they've huge piece of tape this incredible piece of tape look at that tape it's the reinforced <laughs> tape that you would use if you were sending a giant package you know filled with bulky objects they always <laughs> seal their little tiny letter responses with it so i'm going to i'm going to open it up i have no idea what it's about I don't there know may what, be something very very important be, secret inside so it may be momentous but, the tape. but i want <laughs> i want to tell you that i have never yet gotten a thing back from the cia that was momentous that wasn't actually <laughs> an actual response. So this is a response dated 14th of July. Um, and it says, Dear Mr. Baker, reference F2017. So it was a it was a request that I made three years ago. We received your uh, appeal. Okay, this is actually an important one. I appealed something where they said, No, we can't give you the certain document. I said, there's a whole process that you go through, you say, I really need this document. It's terribly important. And they say no. And that's the first step. And that takes a year or two. And then, then you go back to them and you say, no, 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 you don't understand. I really need it for these reasons. It was a long time ago. It's material to whatever. And you make the best arguments you possibly can. I thought my arguments were pretty good. But they say, we have received your appeal regarding the response to the freedom of, of the information and privacy coordinator to your request. <sighs> okay. <laughs> They're not denying me yet. <laughs> They're just saying that they have received my appeal. We processed your initial request with the same case with the case reference number. Please continue to use this case reference number so that we may more easily identify your administrative appeal. This is not in any sense of victory, but it's very typical of the life of everybody. Everyone who has ever tried to get stuff from the CIA knows that this is, this is the norm. Some piece of paper that says absolutely nothing and gives you nothing. I've gotten almost nothing from the CIA, um, really. And one lawyer told me, you never get anything unless you sue. So this whole system that was supposed to be kind of a noble system where anybody anywhere on the world in the world in fact not just the united states but anyone could ask i would like to see what my government is doing um that system simply doesn't work you have mm -hmm. to sue so but i guess at some point i'm gonna a very expensive litigation right i mean unless you can find a lawyer who is willing to take on your case pro bono and 
you know, do that, you, uh, you have to come up with the money. Well, so shall we move on to the next reading? Because I th you're going to tell us about some people who put significant time resources into this and had some small victory. Yes. And there's a guy mowing <laughs> the lawn. This is the, the uplifting lawn. side of things. There is a guy mowing the lawn, but um, I don't know if you hear that, but that's just the way it is. People mow their lawns, you know, at 7.30 at night sometimes. All right, so this is um, much later in the book. I've been telling you about a lot of unpleasant things in this book. And I'm sorry about that. But there's one huge victory that I haven't stressed enough. Muckrock's victory over the Central Intelligence Agency. The principals in the story are Jason Smathers, Emma Best, Michael Morrissey, and Kel McClanahan. It begins with a 2009 article in Mother Jones about the Crest database. This database of millions of pages of digitally scanned and declassified, although often redacted documents, that I've been quoting from practically every day in this book and that were then accessible to the public only at a cluster of four computer terminals at the National Archives. Is the agency covering up what it is already uncovered, asked Bruce Falconer at Mother Jones. The CIA was reluctant to put Crest on the web, on the web Falconer wrote, because the agency didn't want to risk disclosing sources and methods. The fear is that foreign spies utilizing the so-called mosaic principle could piece together fragments of information from a wide range of declassified sources to make deductions about ongoing intelligence operations. I'm just gonna tell you what, this, what happened. So that was the first step. Then this man named Jason Smathers got interested in making FOIA requests. And he was a person who had spent some time in jail because he had sold to spammers something like 50 million um, AOL addresses when he was an engineer at AOL. So he spent some time in prison and he was interested in government secrets. So he started to submit requests and he got the help from Muckrock, which is allows you to make FOIA requests very efficiently. It allows you to use their computer interface to track requests. And so and it's a very small outfit. They're really nice people. I love this place. I mean, I really think they've done great things and they're very small. So Jason Smathers started to sort of poke at the CIA with requests. And um, meanwhile, he became a uh, minister at, at, and started a church actually. So he's kind of an interesting eccentric guy, but um, Mostly the CIA didn't respond, just had, he had responses the way I do, you know, and very unsuccessful. But then he had a success. He asked for complaints received by the CIA about its employee cafeterias. And um, something like two months later, got a whole dossier of complaints that CIA employees had said about their cafeterias. They respond immediately when it has no actual material in importance to American history and it was funny and it was nice and they, um, and then he made a second request on that sort of on the heels of this successful but a little bit trivial request he asked for the following records 
the entire Crest database in electronic format. Do not send paper, he said. I am requesting the computer database, which makes up the records considered to be the Crest system. So he's asking for this massive hundreds of thousands of pages, more than that, of documents that have already been declassified and um, are available on these at this one place in the National Archives. Four computer terminals, there's surveillance cameras, there are little messages saying you will your your movements are going to be tracked and all that stuff. That's the only way you could look up these documents. And he's saying, no, I want the electronic record. I want the whole thing. He got a response from the CIA a month and a half later. We have determined that the requested material must be denied on the basis of FOIA exemption B1. And the FOIA exemption B1 is about records that are currently and properly classified. So the bizarre thing is, even though every single document in that collection had been declassified, the whole collection was considered still to be classified. So that didn't make any sense. So the people at Muckrock, Michael Morrissey and, um, and his colleagues, got together with a really smart lawyer named Kel McClanahan, and they, and they took over this idea that Jason Smathers had had. Jason Smathers kind of retreated. And they said to the CIA, give us the Crest database. We want the entire thing. Don't touch it. We don't need you to declassify anything. We just want it the way it is. And the litigation support person at the CIA said that this was an unreasonable and unduly burdensome request. And the estimate was that it would take 28 years to review these documents and possibly longer than that. And that uh, they had to do that because the documents might be available to hostile adversaries if they just released them. And so um, this got out in the press and there was a certain amount of ridicule because why would it take 28 years to declassify documents when the entire Crest database was assembled in a shorter time than that, right? So then they, they looked at it, they thought about it, and they said, no, no, it's only going to take six years. And, um, but it is going to cost Muckrock $108,000 to do that release. And so the Cal McClanahan wrote um, a response, and time went by, you know, the kind of year of time that, uh, that it takes to have a court case. And this other guy started to photocopy, uh, not guy, this guy, this person, Emma Best, started copying records. The important thing is that this moment, how's the audio? It's great. I think you're totally back online. Okay. Is um, it made possible the ability to look at all of the declassified records from all these years of struggle and it and I only found out about it because I was trying to look up things in the CIA database about this particular little question that I had. So I typed in BW Korea and things like that, BW for biological warfare. And suddenly I got documents that I hadn't seen before. And some of the documents were reports of, of Chinese and North Korean military units who were sending messages to each other saying, the enemy has dropped insects on us. Send DDT. They said, we have, a, 
we need more vaccines. So I suddenly got documents as part of this huge crest system that were, you know, bits of evidence for what I was doing. So that was one of the, you know, big breakthroughs was that step by step, people who wanted to find something out and failed went closer and closer to a moment when, in which finally this multi-billion dollar agency caved and said, we'll put it up on the web. And it actually has helped people. I mean, books are being written right now as a result of this gigantic theory, uh, victory. So and, I want to jump in with a question about the form of yeah. the book, which we really mm -hmm. haven't talked about much. And I get the impression from a lot of the questions here too, that you know, so many people reading this book will be reading it because it's, it's not a, it's a very unusual book. It's a very Nicholson mm -hmm. Baker book. Um, mm -hmm. It's written in these dated chapters day by day, almost like a log of telling the story. They mm -hmm. open with usually a paragraph or two of um, the kind of observation one might find in your novels, the texture of life um, and the generosity of spirit, which I think people often remark sort of characterizes your writing. Um, Thank you. But this, this waiting, this experience of waiting, which, you know, we've talked about the lawyers battling through, we've talked about these really hardcore foyer guys going toe to toe with, for you, that experience of waiting is in, intensely personal. Like the way it's written about in the book, you say, you know, I may die before the CIA gives me a document. Yeah. Um, why did you want to emphasize that like daily experience of, trying to find out what happened. Because I think that what, there are many, many books that are written about the Cold War. Um, and they always, um, almost always, they present a very, almost like an omniscient view of this is what happened. And we don't, we can't tell this, we don't. But, but really what that person did, that historian did was get up in the morning and think about one aspect and there were frustrations and there were breakthroughs and there were, and there were distractions. And so I wanted to kind of tell this in some way, tell this story that is in self important, but um, keep the confusion and the, I don't know, the gritty texture of, of, a, of, of, a, hor a historian, I mean, I'm not a professional historian, but you know, a public historian's kind of daily life. Get those two things mixing together and, and see, where, see if that um, actually makes me think of things in a different way. So for instance, we got these two rescue dogs uh, that were middle-aged dachshunds and we got them, I think it was a day or two before I actually started writing this diary. Um, and it was, it was just a coincidence in a way, but they became very important to me in the book. And, and one day, the one of the, they'd all had their teeth taken out and, you know, they were on Lyme, uh, Lyme disease medication. So that led me to write about this whole question of, of whether Lyme disease is, a, is a, something that has escaped from a laboratory or whether it was something that naturally evolved. So I just... I just basically got up in the morning really early, made coffee, tiptoed around. And when I went to the computer, I didn't think, what am I writing about next chronologically 
in this overall story of, you know, biological warfare or something, I thought, what do I really want to say today about this whole mess? It might be about Cuba. It might be about Guatemala. I want to sleuth my way or slalom my way around obstacles and impediments and, and kind of shortcut my way to something that makes sense that day. And that's why I chose the diary method, because I think it's truer. It's truer to the way people think about history. Right. Um, to pivot slightly, one question that sort of kept coming back to me as I was reading about these really horrifying acts and plans um, was sort of the thorny issue of trying to write about something when um, necessarily you're working with very fragmentary information and a degree of mm -hmm. there being either evasiveness on the part of the authorities or some extent of cover-up. Um, and that seems like a really hard thing to do because we're living certainly in a moment where our culture is sort of steeped in conspiracy theories. And at the same time, journalists and historians have brought to light acts um, that if they had not been exposed and uh, you know, brought before the public with real evidence, it would be so easy to dismiss as conspiracy theories. Right. Like we know that people make up fanciful ideas about what may have happened, but we also know that really fanciful, exaggerated and awful things happen and are covered up. Mm -hmm. So how do you write about that? Well, it is, it's difficult. One thing I try to do is not use the phrase conspiracy theories, even though, you know, my God, we know that there are a lot of wacky things that are being said on YouTube, for instance, and the world is not flat and people did actually go to the moon and they're not a, a race of lizard creatures living under the Antarctic, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of really nutty things that people are saying very seriously and it's disturbing that those things uh, gain currency. There are also things that serious people spend years of life studying and thinking about that sound strange, but are maybe not strange. I mean, the classic case is the, the two things that sort of are magnets for people are the Pearl Harbor question and the Kennedy assassination question. And, the, and there've been a lot of, you know, interesting kind of disagreements about those. So I don't think of those as conspiracy theories. And I don't just you because because the phrase is is so often abused. It's so often mm -hmm. used to just it just means it's sort of like kryptonite. As soon as you say, Oh, well, you're going to use that conspiracy theory. Uh, you know, if you're going to talk that we you know, it's it just it is so insulting it's so awful to be told that what you're saying is a conspiracy theory uh -huh. that it it actually stops people cold um well i guess that brings us to the very title of this book which comes from the code the project name for mm -hmm. the the program which was project baseless and seems to play to this idea that you could the the nice thing for the government about this form of warfare was it's so easy to deny and it's so easy to shrug off and say, well, these, these charges are completely baseless. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very entwined with that mode of dismissing things as a conspiracy mm -hmm. theory. Um, well, I'm realizing right. that we only have yeah. five more minutes and there mm -hmm. are so many really great questions from oh, the sure. audience. I feel terrible for taking up um, more time. So I want to ask one last question and then try to go to the audience really quickly. Um, some people might read this book and what they might take away from it is 
um, this is a book that is accusing the US government of terrible acts. Mm -hmm. And this is an attack on America. Mm. And the way you frame the book is that this is an expression of faith in the United States. You have this great line, I want to believe in this American government. I want it to work. Um, <laughs> so I guess just before I go to the questions, I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit about how the book can be read as an act of hope. Well, uh, for one thing, there are lots of books of history that have been written by people who, though it took them 20 years, but they did tease it together and they pulled it and the, and the parts that were lacking, they filled in other ways. I, I found that I often could tell a story about some secret program um, and learn things about the program by reading the local press, by reading the, the newspaper of Fort Detrick, for instance, the, 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 the town of Frederick, Maryland. But also it's just really more that the United States is not about these programs. These programs, I think, are things that a very tiny stratum of society located in Washington who are full of paranoias and fears about other countries cook up. And most of us are just not on that plane. Most of what is good about America, which involves things like short stories in the New Yorker, and music and sitcoms and incredible car designs and you know better ways of making hockey pucks and just uh, innumerable small and large triumphs of manufacturing and of advertising i mean print advertising beautiful kind of sketchy drawings you know there's a lot about america that is tremendous and almost none of it has to do with its atomic arsenal and its all the bad things that it does. So um, I think we have to look at all this horrible stuff, take it in and be made humble by it and say, we really, these parts of our character as a country are not the good parts. We have to know that we were capable of doing things that were this shockingly, horribly bad, because when we learn that, we, we, it, it makes us humbler and probably makes us better world citizens. That's what I think is there's, there's a logic to confronting the worst things that your country has done. Um, it allows you to, and, and also to retreat and to understand the good things that it does and to value those more and encourage people to think about those more. So that's, that's my thought. Right. And I think the effect of the book, uh, it only came out yesterday, so most people won't have had a chance to read it, yeah. but is to reaffirm um, the wonder of existence and um, the great potential of humanity. Well, that, thank you. That was another thing that I kept thinking is because we're in a really horrible time. We've got a very, very awful presidential administration, awful things. But you, if you look at what the world was doing during the Harry, Harry Truman administration, and he's you know, he's got a much higher reputation than Trump, but is so many people died. There was such a, a level of mayhem and destruction and in intervention in other, other countries that in, a, in fact, it, it, kind of, it kind of, it's a demonstration of the fact that things have gotten somewhat better. Now I say that even though we're in the midst of a horrendous epidemic, so that kind of changes things. 
Well, now I'm going to uh, switch mm -hmm. over to the questions. There are some really great questions. There are also a ton of questions. Um, mm -hmm. Many of them, though, are about your fiction. So I'm going to read all of those to you at the same time. Okay. Um, they're loosely on the theme of asking what you're going to do next. Um, so here's one. Mr. Baker, I have long been a fan and teacher of your fiction. The Mezzanine, Room Temperature, Vox, etc. Although I enjoy nonfiction, consider it welcome and worthy. I wonder whether you see yourself returning to fiction more actively in the next few years. As an English PhD, I've often found you among the best fiction writers of your generation. Um, then- Well, that's awfully nice. That is a very nice one. There are more <laughs> in a similar vein. Um, this question is from Lee Rossi. I'm a huge admirer of your erotica and other fiction. How do you determine what comes next? Fiction of right. the juiciest sort or nonfiction with important moral and social implications, <laughs> um, yeah. which I think is a really great tension to bring out. And then um, I believe someone said, Mr. Baker, will you write fiction again? So those are three linked questions. Well, I want to write fiction again and fiction is, is a, a novels are very wonderfully stretchy and you can do all sorts of things that you can't do with nonfiction. Sometimes I think it's best to alternate. Um, and because it, fiction also, because it's so squishy and stretchy and, and, and you can just go anywhere is sometimes frightening. And, and I have written a lot of autobiographical novels and I, you know, uh, and as far as the erotic novels, well, I'm 63 now, you know, I mean, um, maybe I did that. I don't know. I, I'm proud of those. And I, I, I don't know if, if it's the same. I mean, is it the same? I certainly, sex is a great thing. And I, I might do that, but I might have to do it under a pseudonym or something, do, do something tricky. But I do want to go back to writing fiction. But the thing is, you, sometimes you can't help it. You know, there's a cure, there's a moment. I worked on this book for 10 years. I have put everything I have, every element, every, every last pipette and crucible and whatever of myself in this book by doing all this research. And it took me a long time. And meanwhile, I wrote other books, you know. So this is sort of a, this is sort of an umbrella project. The relief of getting this book into something that looks like a rectangular object with pages is so enormous that I feel I could do anything now. <laughs> I mean, it was so hard to, to get all these names and, you know, they're colonels and majors and, you know, all different divisions. It's just so confusing. But it's also, I think, my job to look at this stuff and talk, try to talk about it in some coherent way try to do something new with it using this diary form instead of, of ignoring it. Because for, for a long time with the mezzanine, room temperature, Vox, into the fermata, I wrote, I said, I do not want sad things in my books. I do not believe in sad things. But life is filled with sad things. And there have been terrible things that have happened. So I, did, I wrote a book about the Second World War, Human Smoke, which is a, probably the worst thing in history. And I've written this one, which is about all kinds of weird scientific programs that should never have happened, because we have to think about those things as well. And then if you think about them coherently, and you come to an understanding with them, maybe you could put that medicine ball of guilt and unhappiness to one side, and pick up a, you know, a short story by Alice Monroe again. 
Well, that brings us to another question here. Um, this is from Philip Turner. He said, can Nick compare the writing of Human Smoke with the writing of this book? That book had many documents, but from abroad more than the US. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, the two are in some ways similar because I like to quote a lot. I like to listen to what the people actually said in their diaries or in their memoirs, oral histories, or what the newspapers said. So in that way, they're similar, but actually they're, there's, because the forms are so different, the experience of reading them is very, the human smoke, be, human smoke begins with um, a certain date and it moves forward incrementally. And there's a date given with almost every, on every page with every, every entry. Whereas baseless is, there's still dates, but it's, they're my dates, it's my life. And then, I, and so it's the, the two books have, are sort of, topologically inside out of one is one is a world on a timeline then and the other is a world that's been turned in on itself and is part of my consciousness um and i because i didn't i didn't want to do human smoke again with this for one thing there are too many people and and it, there's too much i couldn't do it i tried to do it several times i have thousands of pages of drafts that are in chronological order but it wasn't fair to the material. You know, the, the material is, is, for one thing, the covert action people are so interestingly consistent in their behavior that they often, when, the, when, when someone does something in Albania, they then remember what they've done and they do it in Guatemala. Or so that because there's this kind of consistency and, and uh, conspiratorial texture to covert action, secret things, um, it, it lends itself to a kind of shoots and ladders um, tr treatment of narrative where you can, where you go from here right down to there and then back over here. And um, I'm, you know, it's, it's just a whole different approach. Just, um, I have a couple questions here, um, which I wish I had actually asked myself. I had notes down to ask these. Um, so someone says, could you say a few words about COVID-19 in relation to the book? Mm -hmm. And another question on a similar vein is, given what's happened in the last six months, how has the life of the book or relationship with it changed? Mm -hmm. Are there things about leadership, secrecy, discourse, and trusting government that you that would have digressed to you? I think that means that you would have gone into if mm -hmm. you were still working on baseless now? Well, I do believe that if you're, if you're writing about a time, then of course I would have written about, I, I would have written about COVID because it was a di it's a diary. Um, one thing, it, when I was doing, reading the book aloud as an audiobook, it was a, a very odd experience because there was so many, there were little moments where someone was wearing masks. There were a lot of lab accidents, laboratory accidents. The history of germ warfare development in the United States is the history of American scientists getting sick. And there's a classic one, which this one fairly prestigious American doctor named Armstrong worked at the National Institute of Health, got interested in Q fever. There was an effort to make it into a, a biological weapon and he investigated and got sick, very sick. 
and other people died. And then he decided, well, maybe we're not ready to study that. So he studied other very risky diseases. Then he went back and studied it again. And that time, 24 of his colleagues got sick. Now, he didn't get sick because he'd already gotten sick, but one person died. So they built a fancy new state-of-the-art building that would be so good at containing these incredibly risky diseases that nobody would get sick. And they started to look at Q fever again. And immediately people started to get sick. So the history of epidemics, the history of lab, strange things happening in laboratories is all the way through this book. And it raises, I think, a terribly important question about whether we are, we are allowed to know what's going on in the American government and, in, and its research into these very risky diseases and in the Chinese government. This is all built around secrecy. We don't know enough about it. So the, the idea of, of forcing more transparency and openness and saying to every of one of these high secure laboratories that studies these, these unbelievably risky things, open your freezers, let's see your notebooks, we wanna know what happened. Why did the world get sick from these diseases that had not existed before? We need to know that. That's science, we need to let science work. So that's certainly the book, my book has that implication is that secrecy is killing us. I'm just checking that I'm uh, not muted so that I can ask you the next question. Um, so this is a question, I'm going to shorten this one a little bit, but um, the questioner says, do you, do you think there is a hard truth that you'd be able to arrive at? Another way to say this would be, do you think you could ever get the documents that would satisfy you and would tell the story completely? No, I mean, it's not a, it's, it's not a legal case. I think there are already enough documents that I have because of this massive victory over the CIA that Muckrock did. There's enough there to make a very powerful case that something um, happened in Korea that was not a natural epidemic. And that sickness that I described still exists in Korea. It, it hasn't gone away. It's still something that makes people sick in Korea, this hemorrhagic fever. But the other one, I'll just have to leave it to people to read to the end because the other um, moment in this whole propaganda battle, um, actually, it may not have been, it may not be true. It may be something that the, was called a cover and deception operation that involved the dropping of insects and creepy crawly, worrisome bugs that were taken from Japanese laboratories, but these they were, they did not actually, were not actually carrying diseases. So, and that is my belief is that the second one was a, was a, a way of want, a, a desire to make the communists very frightened and disturbed and not actually make them sick. Right. I do want to clarify here too, because this didn't come up in the interview, but the scope of the programs you're describing here are a series of research program, some mm -hmm. test missions, mm -hmm. um, but nothing that, and, and a lot of these, what might be deemed sort of very ghoulish wartime pranks of dropping dead bugs and harmless things, but making mm -hmm. people think it might be bio war. Uh, but this book does not claim 
anywhere that there's evidence to suggest that this went fully operational. This did not enter the regular sort of arsenal of US military operations. That Would you say that's fair? Oh yeah, no, there's, uh, there, there are no, there are, there are no, there, there were no massive biological attacks. It was all, this is all potential. This is people mm -hmm. in the Pentagon talking about how best to kill other people. But it's, it's not like the atomic bomb that, in which the bomb was actually used on people. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that so that readers yeah. have a sense of, of like the, the extent of your claims and, and the extent of what is being covered up mm -hmm. here. Um, okay, so I, I know we've gone over and there, there are still 12 questions. I don't think I'm going to be able to ask all of them. Um, so I'm going to end with one last question. Um, I wish maybe you could choose the question, but there's probably way too much for you to read. Um, so I'm going to ask this question uh, from Pat Heller, who says she's received the book yesterday and she's 100 pages in. Um, early on, you referred to the great investigative report by Cy Hirsch. In the course of your research and writing, did you reach out to currently active investigative reporters to gather material about their experiences with the FOIA or for their comments on your experience? I know that you've already spoken about that a bit, bit because you've been involved with the Muckrock people, um, but maybe just a final comment on that. Well, I've, I just, I think part of the reason that I wanted to write the book is I'm so admiring of the, the uh, just the determination, the persistence, the patience that people have when they are trying to come up with a coherent account of something that happened. How many phone calls are necessary and interviews and how much just work is involved in, in doing real journalism. It's inspiring, it's incredible, it's amazing. And there's some, there are some classic books um, of history of cold war history that that i love and um this book is not really like that this book is me admiring those people um and trying to make my and come up with my own private set of conclusions about what happened and also trying to make sense of why i would be fascinated in this unsolved question and I want to I want to end though with one happy thing that I hoped would happen and did happen, which is I wrote this book, thinking about all the the fact that other journalists were much better than I was at getting at secrets, and there was one document that was the the most redacted document that I dealt with. Okay, it's a very important document, and it was not even possible to know what they're saying in this thing because there's so many redactions, right? And it's a cover and deception plan in 1949 that was going to do something. And I came up with, in, in this book, I came up with a set of guesses about what was that document was like. And so the book was just about to go to press when mysteriously in the mail, miraculously, the unredacted, completely unredacted, not a single blacked out document arrived. The same document, but with no, nothing blacked out. So now I know that this, what this plan was, and it was terribly important. And so the, the writing the whole book, even though I, some of the conclusions will never be known, the writing of the book dislodged one tiny Pentagon document out of all of them, 
completely. It's completely dislodged and it's important. And the document says that the deception plan would be that the United States will tell the Soviet Union that they have developed methods of producing mass cultures of the blank bacillus of high virulence, methods of stabilizing the organiza organism for distribution and methods for procuring solid immunity in humans against the organism. So they were gonna spread this rumor that the Americans were taking up this probably with anthrax uh, and they had also developed a vaccine and they had gotten it very to be very virulent, very contagious and they were gonna scare the Soviet Union and that was gonna be a good project to do, they thought, because it would distract the Soviet Union from other scientific endeavors that, and it would waste Soviet activity. So what they did in fact, was start a biological arms race in order to distract the Soviet Union. So that's the one, one document, this is one tiny victory that happened as a result of writing this book. And so I'm proud of that little moment of disclosure, shall we say. I'm so glad that you were able to bring that and to show it to us. Um, I'm not sure we would have actually been able to see that in real life very well. Um, I can't believe that we've only covered such a tiny fraction of things I wanted to talk to you about, but it's uh, nearly 20 past eight, so I have to stop. Um, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about the book. Um, Baseless came out yesterday. Um, as you can probably tell if you've been listening to this conversation, we've really only scratched the surface of all of the stories and rabbit holes um, that Nick has been going down for nearly a decade. Um, please stay tuned for more of these events. We are going to be back later this month. Um, my um, colleague Chris Lehman is going to be talking to Rick Perlstein about Reaganland. Um, so uh, make sure that you tune in for that. And again, thank you so much, Nick. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, Laura. And I want to thank all the people who, who came and to listen to this. It's, it's very exciting to know that there are people who want to follow along with me in my little wanderings. Thank you. I know. And if you were one of the people who asked one of these excellent questions, I didn't get to uh, ask Nick. Um, I know that he'll be doing other stuff around his book, so you may get a chance to bring them up then. Um, yeah, all the questions were so good. It's really exciting to see people reading the book and getting interested in it so closely. Thanks. All right. Good night. Bye, all. Thank you.